Episode 39 with computer scientist and artificial intelligence researcher Timnit Geber. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with artificial intelligence researcher Timnit Gebru. Timnit advocates for fair and just use of the technology we use every day. A former employee of Google, Timnit consistently calls in and calls out a big tech industry that leverages power, capital, and bias in favor of, well, themselves and their wallets. From language to surveillance, Timnit knows the potential harms of artificial intelligence knows no bounds. Fleeing Ethiopia due to a border conflict with her country of origin, Eritrea, Timnit found herself in the throes of the subtle anti-black violence that weaves through American culture as a mere 15-year-old student in Massachusetts. Cloaked in concern, Timnit navigated race-based discrimination to graduate with her bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degrees from Stanford University. Informed by her experiences, Timnit's work unapologetically confronts companies like Google, Apple, and Meta with the harm their technologies inflict upon black and brown peoples across the world. After a controversial exit from Google, Timnit founded the Distributed Artificial Intelligence Research Institute, or DARE, to center and reflect the lived experiences of the global majority. As a recent Time Magazine article reflected on Timnit's thesis, if artificial intelligence is trained on data from the real world, who loses out when that data reflects systematic injustices? Were the companies at the forefront of AI really listening to the people they had hired to mitigate those harms? And in the quest for AI dominance, who gets to decide what kind of collateral damage is acceptable? In a time when we're at war, today's episode calls into question, for whom are we fighting? Whose wars are worthy of discussion? And what harms are so deeply ingrained within our consciousness that we ignore our own civilian casualties? As the world witnesses the 13th month of a war in Ethiopia, Timnit's journey reminds us of the refugee, the warrior, and the heroes we often dismiss and determine unworthy of home. If you find this content valuable, please rate, review, and share it over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you receive your podcast. And you know, you can always share a comment or a DM over on Black Imagination at Instagram and Twitter. And you're more than welcome to enter our world at IBI Digital at blackimagination.com. And without further ado, my sister, Timnit Gebru. Um, so, Timnit Gebru, I am so excited to hop into this conversation. I'm one just completely honored to be in conversation with you um you know i think studying your work like tangentially and kind of peripherally like through the work of joy Buolemi um at mit 
Um, and to I think to have a conversation that is so, I think, pressing, you know, pressing around, you know, artificial intelligence um, and AI. But before we dive into that, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to? Wow. Oh, wow. I didn't think about this, but let me tell you who is on my mind constantly right now. Um, there is a, one of the most horrifying wars of the 21st century um, in Ethiopia uh, with the involvement of the Eritrean um, government with forcefully conscripted um, uh, youth to this war and there is a, a blockade um, in the northern Ethiopian um, state of Tigray where um, millions of people are starving basically um, similar to what's happening in Yemen and among them are also Eritrean refugees who were escaping the brutal brutal dictatorship of um, of this one man, I can't even call it a government. So, so I'd like to dedicate um, today's um, conversation to them because I think of black imagination and these kids are, you know, very far from a, from a space where they should be imagining and playing. Um, and I just, I hope that we get to a world where this is not happening under the whole world's watch yet again. Mm. Um, thank you for that. Sorry, like that kind of that kind of hit me at a place. I'm um, mm. um yeah, just you know, just the thought of um you know, just individuals, you know, trapped in power plays um, that just don't allow for a level of freedom, even, you know, a freedom. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I don't I, I'm sorry to so start with that. that. No, it's okay. Yeah, it's, it's um, heavy. It's heavy. Yeah. And um, just the ways in which you know, media uh, is designed to pull focus yeah, from the things that matter so much, you know, and, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think it hits because one of my, um, I don't know, I just have this thing about feeling trapped and it's not about claustrophobia. It's about being in a place where you just, don't have choices um and so much of this work and you know even this podcast is about how do we find the mental space even when our physical situation uh does not allow for a type of freedom how do we find that freedom on the inside right because that is that's what's required right like that that spirit work is that that is is what powers hope for something right for an imaginative future for a speculative future that is beyond what we can physically perceive yeah right? and so um so thank you for and i have that. to say that i am um, i appreciate your reaction because that's the right reaction 
that 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 is <laughs> the human way to react what I just said. And, you know, I think that to a certain extent, we've um, been either conditioned or or forced to devalue the lives of our own people in order to just, you know, survive day to day, right? Um, to, to, to compartmentalize it and to not react the way you we should react when when we are hearing these um, stories and we when, when we know people um, this is happening to etc and uh, honestly it, it, to me I, I feel like I, I must have been conditioned to devalue my own people to be um, mm. hearing this news over and over again daily and and I don't know, kind of like continue on or do something else, you know, I mean, it's, it's not normal. It's, it's not, it's not at all. It's not normal. Mm. Yeah. Or, or human. Yeah. Um, you know, or completely human. Speaking of not human. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, like, let's hop into what, what, what is our art- artificial intelligence, right? People speak about AI here and there and everywhere. What is it? What are we even talking about? Okay, so let me just say that I get confused too. <laughs> Perfect. About because you know, I think that uh, this 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 field of AI or of artificial intelligence, first and foremost, there's a huge bubble and hype right now, and so that means that anything that was not even called artificial intelligence before is being repackaged as artificial intelligence right and so anything related you know because people used to say big data data science etc that's all being repackaged into artificial intelligence so um, so what it's so the delineation between what is and isn't ai for me as a researcher who got my you know phd from the uh AI lab um, is still very, very confusing to me, but I'll give you a few examples. There is this segment of the artificial intelligence community that is working on what's called artificial general intelligence. So I'm not part of that segment. And that gives me the vibe of like trying to create a supreme being or something, you know, like Mm. an intelligent um, kind of thing. you know, so I, I don't subscribe to that because I, I don't understand why we would want to do that or what we're why we're trying to do that. So in terms of some of the ex, um, examples, so for instance, um, we have different specialties in artificial intelligence, right? You have, we have natural language processing, which is attempting to make sense of text. So for instance, when you look at machine translation, right, when you're trying to automatically translate from one language to another, that's um, part of natural language translation. Uh, I mean, uh, tra- natural language processing or you're, you know, you're writing email and it has autocorrect or, you know, autocomplete, things like that. Or in terms of computer, um, and then we have computer vision, which was, you know, my expertise, for instance. Um, and so it might try to recognize objects in the in an image and say, oh, that's a plant. That's this other thing. That's, um, you know, something else. And it might even try to do something further, maybe guess what's happening. Like if there's a video of it or an image of, you know, the two of us here talking, for instance, perhaps um, without anything related to, let's say AI, the, you know, your phone or computer uh, only takes that image, doesn't do any sort of other inferences on that image. Perhaps you want it to guess what's going on. Perhaps you want it to guess that there are 
you know, two people, one per, you know, maybe it's a podcast, maybe, you know, one person is interviewing another. So these are the kinds of um, things that people are trying to do with AI. And then that also brings us to so many <laughs> potential problems, not just even potential current problems with the technology. So for instance, surveillance is one of them. Um, and so we have um, face recognition, right? Which is um, technology that takes, you know, from images of people, images or videos, um, it attempts to recognize who is in those videos, who is in those images, often inaccurately. And often um, you just mentioned Joy's work um, showing that, uh, you know, these uh, automated facial analysis tools have huge, huge, huge error rates for especially darker skinned women as compared to lighter skinned men. So often um, have systematic inaccuracies but also, even if there weren't these systematic inaccuracies, you have these technologies that are primarily used to um, surveil black and brown communities, right? They're not mm. surveilling Wall Street. <laughs> they're not surveilling, you know, billionaires. Yeah. They're, they're, they're surveilling um, black and brown um, communities. So that is one of the biggest issues I see in artificial intelligence. Um, another issue is, um, so we were talking about going back to uh, the beginning where I mentioned, you know, war, um, it is um, incredible the amount of drone technologies that are being experimented on that are being used in this war by countries that in, in where there is huge, severe drought, there is a lot of famine that's going on, there is a lot of poverty, but the governments were able to <laughs> pay the money to um, use drones on their own citizens for a war, right? And in the US, it's the same thing, right? We we have people, um, you know, without a lot of resources, without safety nets, but our governments are able to spend so much money on um, drones and other automated militaristic um, equipments that are also used at the border um, to criminalize refugees and migrants who are escaping often these hellish conditions that I just described, right, that are happening. So they, they, we are using these drones and other military equipment to make their lives miserable like that. And then we're using the same um, technology to criminalize their, you know, trying to find a livable place. So that's happening at the border, at the U.S.-Mexico border, that's happening at the EU border, uh, people call it Fortress EU, um, where they're, you know, literally drowning um, people of boats because they don't want them to reach Europe. Um, and in the States, you know, you have, of course, like people trapped at the border, uh, there's drones um, surveilling them, people are trying to work on electronic borders, um, etc. So across the board, I'm seeing, you know, very similar things happening, right, wherever we're looking. Black people everywhere are being um, put at a disadvantage, in my view, um, because of these technologies. Wow. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> like so many images that flashed through my head. You you said like so much. So like for instance, like at these borders, how is artificial intelligence? being used like in a very like practical sense like what does it do so first let me tell you um one of my my frustrations and one of the things i see is 
people in our community are so um, disconnected with, in my view, is the power that Silicon Valley has and um, and what that power is being put to, to right? Uh, what mm. use it's being put to and the power and the money that Silicon Valley has. So um, as an example, there is a company called OpenAI which was created in 2015 as a quote unquote AI safety first company. So they said, you know, all of these large corporations are developing AI technology. They're not transparent. <clears throat> We're gonna be different. We're gonna create artificial intelligence technology that's beneficial um, for all of humanity. And we're gonna, um, you know, be transparent, open AI, right? Open, and, you know, we're gonna be safety first, et cetera. So you see who bankrolled them. It's people like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and other Silicon Valley billionaires. You see who the founding members were, eight white guys, <clears throat> you know, one white woman, one Asian woman. Um, and immediately you're, you know, I think, okay, obviously this is not gonna be safe for us. Like this, you know, that is not what you're thinking about. And so one of the leaders of this company, Sam Altman invested in, um, I forget what the name of it is, in a company where initially the demo for the potential product, so this got leaked, it was in, a, in an article, they, they said they've pivoted since then, it was just a demo. This was the demo. Let me describe to you what the demo was. <clears throat> the demo was about securing the border. So the demo has an actor, and this actor's name is supposed to be Jose. So Jose, okay, so Jose is 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 um, an actor, and so it's he's at the U.S.-Mexico border, and Jose is walking, and the demo says, okay, you know, um, Jose, um, say you have, you know, I don't, I, I'm I'm just you know using terms. I don't know if these were exact what they use, but it's kind of like you know you have an infiltrator kind of thing, and you you have a drone, and the drone is surveilling and finds Jose. And from the drone, there's a conversation saying, you know, like, um, I don't know, raise your hands or whatever, put your hands up or something. And um, apparently, according to this demo, Jose didn't, um, part, you know, what is it called? Like, he didn't do what they asked him to do or whatever. So then they automatically from that drone fire, like, I don't know if it's tear gas or pellet, it's not bullets, but something. And then he falls down. That, that was the demo, right? And so um, I think, you know, the, uh, uh, there are people um, who, like, for instance, um, you said Oculus, there was um, the founder of the company Oculus, Palmer Lucky, he is now uh, working on a quote unquote electronic border control um, company, like, uh, and this, this demo that I told you was one of the demos of, of that company. And they've since quote unquote pivoted, but this is the kind of stuff people are doing and talking about. And let me tell you something, there are billions and billions and billions of dollars going into this application. And why are they not, you know, why are there not billions and billions and billions of dollars going into actually helping people and improving their lives? That's not what's happening. Whew. Wow. Okay. You know, and here I am thinking that like AI is just like helping me like complete a sentence in like Google Docs. Um, 
<laughs> which which I'm which I try to fight. You know, I'm like, no, I don't want my sentence to sound like everybody else's. Yeah, there are artists using AI to work generate art too. They're working um, with um, technology to generate art. So there are you know people doing uses like that. But I'm I'm noting where most of the money is going and mm -hmm. where it's headed, which I think we really need to keep an eye on because what, what it's doing is, you know, there are black women scholars like Bruja Benjamin, like Sophia Noble, um, Simone Brown, who wrote Dark Matters, who talk about, you know, digital red right lining and uh, where we're headed. All of that, that oppression <laughs> um, is, is kind of being reified by this technology. Um, and so I think we need to keep an eye on it and fight it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I think that's, I mean, there's so, so many ways to really unpack that. I think one is, you know, you know, it makes me think about like, right. So you have this founder of Oculus who was acquired by Facebook now called Meta, right. And that, and and then now you have Oculus, like the game. We're now we're we were originally talking about Oculus, the Calatrava designed transit hub in New York City. But now we are talking about Oculus, the VR headset. Um, but you know, so you're seeing this consolidation of technology and and money and one on one hand, um, but then also seeing that like Oculus. I think this last holiday season, like like the Oculus headset like sold more than like the PlayStation, right? Like it was like, um, I mean, my nephew, that was literally the only thing he asked for was like an Oculus headset. And, um, and then I even think about these social media platforms um, like, you know, Facebook and then Instagram, which was bought by Facebook or what is now yeah, Meta. Yeah, WhatsApp bought by Facebook, yeah. Yeah, and so, but, and yet these are things that we are participating in, right? Like every day and the ways in which these apps have been gamified, right? To hit other like dopamine centers in our brain. But behind the scenes, there is this large method of extraction, which makes me think that we're, we're social mediating ourselves into types of oppression that we won't be able to um, eradicate or, or free ourselves of. Um, and, you know, and that's by design. So if we've already been ingratiated in many of these systems, knowing now, right, talking to you and maybe reading other articles, um, the, the kind of dark side of the unethical possibilities with AI. What can we do like in our daily lives and interactions to mitigate some of this extraction? I think that first is um, to learn that uh, these things exist. So for example, and um, unfortunately, we're always behind, right? So we started working on, you know, um, educating people on issues of face surveillance. So my my friend Joy, like I said, she's been at it for such a long time. We wrote a paper together. She's been doing a lot of research. There's the documentary Coded Bias. Um, and um, just she's done spoken word. She uh, performed at Afropunk. Um, uh, and 
still, and there are movements to ban the use of face surveillance. There are local movements, federal movements. The European Union also has um, is is proposing some legislation. So, you know, it's good for people to know in their local. Um, you know, for instance, people have been trying to do this in Detroit, right? In Detroit, they've been trying to get um, use of face recognition ban because it's one of the most heavily surveilled um, cities in, in the country, mm. if not the most heavily surveilled city. So um, there are people like Tawana Petty. So um, she works at Data for Black Lives, for instance, who are organizing and galvanizing their community. So I think one of the things we can all do is um, understand what we could do at the local level and, and just get educated, educate ourselves, um, follow um, these things. It's it's so overwhelming because there are a lot of things happening on, on daily. And I, I think it's by design. It's not even transparent, right? You don't know what kind of companies exist, what they're doing, what's, what, what it, that is unethical because they're not being regulated and they just proliferate. Um, one example is, um, these hiring companies, hiring platforms. So there was this one uh, example is a, a platform called um, HireVue. They stopped doing this, but there's a number of other ones. So for instance, HireVue um, is a company that when you, when you apply for a job, um, they have automatic screening of your resume to figure out who should be um, you know, going to the next step, let's say for an interview or something like that. And then another thing they used to do well, um, they, I think they still do this, is a um, recorded interview. So they have you uh, have a recorded interview. And then I think this is what they stopped doing. Um, they would use quote unquote artificial intelligence technology like emotion recognition or something like that to analyze that recording and help the you know corporation or the potential employer determine you know, you, whether you should be hired or not. And so imagine you, they're analyzing your face. I mean, and you don't even know what, what kind that they were doing that. First of all, a lot of people I talked to didn't even know this was happening. And secondly, who knows what that software is going to determine? What if there is a glitch and it always says that Black people are angry? I mean, that's what I expect, you know, depending on um, what we've seen before. What if, and if, what if, what if it, there is no glitch, but you don't know that there's this emotion recognition software determining whether you should be getting a job or not. And this is being was being used all over the world. So right now you apply for a job and you're at the mercy of this model, you know, wherever you apply and there's this one point of failure. So for me, that's crazy. <laughs> and, yeah. and, but I, you know, but I, I keep on finding out stuff like this, you know, um, and uh, I, I, I can't track all of them. And even as a researcher in this area, I, I don't have transparency into um, all of these companies and what they're doing. So I think that all of us should support regulation. There are, you know, we should ask our um, Congress people, senators, what are you doing? Local states, right? State senators. We're not as involved, I feel, um, in politics, but it's very important. We, you know, are we should ask people, what what are you doing about this? What are you doing to safeguard us from these unsafe uses mm. of artificial intelligence in our daily lives? Um, so that's one. Another one I think is 
understanding, like you said, um, the ways in which um, social media platforms um, manipulate our attention, right? And, and how to combat that or understanding the ways in which there is huge coordinated misinformation and disinformation um, activities on social media. And if you ask me, um, I think that the reason these social media companies are able to make so much money is because they're not putting in the resources that are required to keep their platforms safe, right? Mm -hmm. um, if they were putting in the resources to keep their platforms safe, they would be making a lot less money. Um, that's why, you know, investigative journalism, people don't make barely make money, right? Journalism is, 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 is struggling because they can't just put something out there without, you know, putting in so many resources, right? And so here you have social media companies who platforms can be manipulated by so many different agents, um, basically making all this money without putting in being required to put in the resources to make their platform safe. So we should require that our legislators are paying attention because as a company, you're, how are you gonna decide to make less money um, when you know, you know, how are you gonna buy without being required by anything? You'd be like, oh, hey, you know, I'm gonna make 10% of my revenue from now on. You're not gonna do that. You're gonna fight back hard, right? Car companies are doing that. Um, there is this historian I really like called Mar Hicks, tech historian, and they were writing uh, this, uh, they wrote this op-ed for Wired that talks about how Facebook's fall from grace, I mean, I would say, quote unquote, fall from grace, uh, based on the recent um, whistleblower, Frances Hogan, and her testimonies. Um, so Mar was saying that Facebook's um, fall from grace resembles that of the US auto companies um, they call them the big, big three, um, you know, back in the day, like decades ago. And they were drawing these parallels, like just like Facebook, the big three were saying that they don't need to be regulated just like Facebook. They were lying about how their, you know, companies' cars are safe. But car manufacturers can't just put out cars all over the world without, you know, making sure, putting in all the resources to make their cars safe. And if it's found that there is some uh, fatal flaw, they have to recall these cars, right? Mm. Social media companies are not held to any of these standards at all. There's like literally no regulation that they have to abide by to make sure that their platforms are not harming people. But we know they're harming people. I'm, you know, I just mentioned to you earlier about the war on Tigray. And I've been uh, seeing myself too, you know, I, I get a lot of hate when I, when I um, speak up about the war uh, from people who don't uh, want me to speak up, right? There's a lot of hate speech. There's a lot of disinformation, pointed disinformation. So for instance, if there is an image, a heart-wrenching image of a child starving, um, there was this one example of a child named Surafel starving and and um this child was just born and the parents shared this image with um the journalists because they just wanted the world to know they want the world to do something because this child is 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 starving and um and so a lot of people uh, people would say there was this concerted 
disinformation campaign that says, no, this image is not from Tigray, it's from Yemen. It's not true, it is from Tigray. So it's, it just like tries to confuse people as to what is true, you know, and the same thing is happening in Syria. I mean, you know how the war in Syria is really affecting people, it's awful, but there is a, a concerted campaign, again, on social media and elsewhere to confuse people about what the truth is so that you don't really you, you there's no truth anymore right like mm. what is true so this is a huge problem um, in the entire world uh, there was also an investigation recently in india um by a um a news uh, paper called the wire into something they call tech fog which is a huge huge investigation where they were showing how right-wing elements um, including the government, supported by the government, had this whole concerted uh, campaign to create, you know, they had all, all these methodologies to create um, burner, what they call per burner accounts, like fake accounts that you can't even detect. So they'll create it, post something and like remove it, right? Um, and they would target, you know, for instance, women um, journalists or other people, and they would decide, you know, how to target you based on your political leanings, et cetera to advance right-wing propaganda. So this is happening all over the world. And at the center of it are these tech companies that are in Silicon Valley, right? And, and it, it is unbelievable to me. It's, 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 even, it's even more power than, I don't know, empires or something. So it's literally all over the world, the entire world that they're controlling. And, um, mm. I'm, I'm, and so I think that we really should, um, advocate for regulation to make sure that these companies um, have to be required to show us to prove to us that they're not harming us before they deploy their mm -hmm. products right because right now that's the other issue people your institute is called black imagination and we don't have time to imagine why because we have to prove over and over again that you know there's harmful products we have to prove these harms to us they don't listen we're exhausted you know being harmed and proving these harms if if they were you know if the burden of proof was on them and not on us then we would have time to imagine right because right now what's happening is they get to imagine and they imagine mm. and they produce things that are harmful to our community and we don't have that space to imagine because we're fighting back saying no this is harmful to us and we're just fighting kind of a battle to prove that and then they're off to the next thing metaverse like imagining you know so um that's that's what i think people can do is there's really um, get educated and understand um, that we can lobby our leaders. And so the way to get educated is um, you can follow organizations like the Algorithmic Justice League, uh, Joy's organization, uh, Data and Society is another one, um, Data for Black Lives is another one, AI Now is another one. I just started an institute called the DARE Institute. That's another one. So I think some of these um, organizations try to um, educate people about some of the harms that can occur uh, when we with these platforms. And so I really believe in the phrase power to the people, right? So if you know people are educated, they can go and advocate um, to, for instance, bans of the use of face recognition systems by law enforcement. Um, or, or kind of like I said, um, you know, the social media companies to have to prove to us that they are uh, putting adequate resources and not harming um, specific communities. 
so these are some of the few things um, we can do, but you know, it's a lot. Nobody has time, and, <laughs> but we got to do it. You know, first of all, thank you. I mean, just having you here is a part of that education, you know, um, just, you know, making us aware of these resources. And you, I mean, you, I mean, you hit a couple of things like one, you know, just things to respond to and, and resources um, and also technologies that are being developed that are of service. So one, you spoke about um, the social media backlash of this image of this child. Um, I think you said in Eritrea. In, um, in Ethiopia, Integra. Oh, in it's an Integra. Oh, this is the border, right? This is the border region between the two. Uh-huh. And, um, and people saying, no, no, that's a fake photo. Like, that's from Yemen, which I think speaks to, one, the ways in which technologies, like even Photoshop, can perpetuate harm um but just to let listeners know and maybe um, you may be familiar with the um the content um authenticity initiative um but it's but it's actually a group a consortium of companies like um adobe um the new york times um so essentially what they are creating and i believe they've actually done it um, is a, almost like a blue check or a verification of images. And so what they are developing are technologies within their own um, software that will show you the beginning of an image from, from, its, con, from its actual um, capture, right? So that there will be software in cameras that when the image is taken from that moment all the way to the moment of exhibition in like a newspaper or online, it, you will actually be able to trace and see the provenance of the image. And those images are going to actually have their own extension like JPEG, I think stands for like, you know, joint photographic something group or something like that. There's going to be a new um, extension, which will be, dot cai um and for listeners who are interested in it i've been in conversations with them as well because that's something you know as an image maker i'm very um just invested in right it's the ethics of the profession um and so uh for people who are interested you can actually go to um content you can google content authenticity initiative and the website is contentauthenticity.org um and we'll put a link to that in the show notes um but then also you mentioned um you know like like the capital right and 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 i think what undergirds all of this is capital um and one, just our relationship to capital, the way in which capital has really, really been um, the source of so much harm for centuries, um, but the ways in which it just forces decision-making and unethical behavior because of the stories we tell ourselves about capital um, and what it allows for. Um, but for instance, you mentioned like investigative journalism not actually having the money required or the resources required to actually do their job because it's just much more lucrative to be hype artists, right? Something that um, Fox News really, really capitalized on becoming one of the, um, like outperforming every media company just in disinformation, right? Just like in an emotional journalism versus ethical journalism, where then you've now seen this pivot of, 
other organizations like like you know the New York Times and this is not to say that these are innocent benign bystanders but like they've started to play that game as well just to stay afloat and then you have you know uh, uh, an informant I'll just go to say an informant like Donald Trump who then gets to now go back and say oh the New York Times is fake news Right. Like and CNN and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's so it's a really it's a really kind of fucked up um, sequence of events. Right. Um, which goes back to regulation, because a big part of this is uh, the repeal of like the fairness doctrine. And so if anyone is familiar uh, with the fairness doctrine or unfamiliar with the fairness doctrine, you can just Google it and see how, you know, media itself was deregulated in the Reagan administration um, because what the fairness doctrine allowed for or made sure of or regulated was that information that was presented on new in news organizations had a fairness to them so for every x amount of information you had um, that was right when you were forced to by law actually have give a certain amount of time to like the opposing candidate um, to speak their views and so that was something that was actually removed or greatly reduced in the reagan administration and interestingly enough if you follow it it's been a fight in Congress um, for a very long time, and it was something that actually Obama upheld. upheld. He actually upheld the um, the repealing of the fairness doctrine. So it's just the ways in which one, you know, education about um, just policies that affect us on a daily basis, um, but then also the history, right? Just American history or history writ large has deleterious effects on our present and we don't realize there was actually something that was done in the 80s that have made space for a fox news which then uses existing technologies um you know of distribution and exhibition of information to then misinform a populace that then those who are marginalized on or oppressed are then now forced with right the burden of proof or just the burden of labor of survival um, in order to then push back but this was something that was started like in the 80s and the ways in which you know technology perpetuates these things and and then the onus is then like oh this is actually about poor white americans actually no Right. Like because because we don't have these much larger conversations, we end up reacting to systems. We end up reacting to like the residue or like the outcomes or the outputs. Right. Like I like to call a lot of things that we consider, quote unquote, like racist or or racism really just output like outputs, outputs of a much larger operating algorithm. And as you speak about um, even these you know, these larger, massive amounts of, of, of data and then misinformation that are used for surveillance, which are used for, um, you know, kind of oppressive tactics, again, to the service of capital, it makes me really look through a historic lens and see that not much has actually changed right like that that the same architect that built the united states congress building first actually built the virginia state penitentiary right so so before we even had a building 
of regulation, we actually had a building of like punitive and punishment, right? That was that was that was commissioned by Thomas Jefferson. So so it's a, in a way it's it's this is a conversation about what levers of power exist contemporarily to continue the perpetuation of harm. Um, and that's something we can double tap on and go back into because I'm just like, ah! but, you know, speaking about, <clears throat> you know, Tigray and um, just what's happening um, with many asylum seekers, right? People who are seeking um, a better life around the world. You know, this is also a very personal story. Yeah. You know, this is a very personal story because you were born in this region. Could you tell us a bit about, you know, those origins and coming into the States? Yeah, you know, I was born and raised in um, the capital city of Ethiopia, and it's it's called Addis Ababa. And my parents are Eritrean. Um, so, um, you know, I'm of Eritrean descent. So Eritrea is a country north of Ethiopia. And Eritrea was colonized by the Italians. And actually, I found out, you know, I just, the way we learn um, history is kind of, the, the way I learn about it is I learned, oh, you know, so-and-so, like your great uncle, you know, actually um, went to prison for a while because he had to sit in the back of the bus because, you know, th that the Italians required that you know, the locals had to sit in the back of the bus that I didn't know much about it, right? I didn't read very much. And I was like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Or, you know, so-and-so who is your, you know, cousin's great-grandfather actually read a, led a rebellion um, and died fighting the Italians. So these are the kinds of, these are the ways in which, and, and here is the poetry, you know, that accompanies it, that stuff, that that is the way I learned about some of these things, but um, so in 1998, there was a war between Ethiopia and Eritrea, and um, those of us who are Eritrean, of Eritrean descent in Ethiopia were being deported, and just, just happened, you know, all of a sudden. So I had to figure out. Um, so many members of my family were getting deported, and um, I was 15, and one of the biggest things that we were worried about was that, you know, there's this forced conscription in Eritrea that's still happening, that I would be forcefully conscripted and then have to fight in that war, right? It was a, a huge possibility this happened to other members in my family. So I was just trying to get out, like just any, just trying to get out of the country. And my sisters had gotten out uh, about like 10 years earlier, um, prior because of another war and, um, and, and, and yet another set of persecution. So my sisters were luckily in the United States. And at that time, uh, I went to the U.S. Embassy and they said, you know, you're Eritrean, we're not going to give you a non, you, you know, a visitor's visa because you're not, you're not going to come back. You're being persecuted right now. And then, you know, we went to the British embassy, they wouldn't give us a visa. We went to, so finally, um, one of my sisters was, um, happened to be in Ireland just randomly, just for, um, uh, you know, a break or something like that. And she convinced the authority, she convinced people there that, to give me a visa and she convinced them it was temporary. And so I went to Ireland and my mom was very, very lucky, let me tell you. Um, she had gotten a visa to the US 
um, <laughs> going uh, to uh, my uh, beforehand going to my sister's graduation and it was a black visa officer and he was so excited he was like congratulations and you know it was so sweet um and this is not our experience um with visas visas are you know uh if you're someone in the african continent um it's like you know over 50 percent of your visa applications for anything um let's say you want to go to an academic conference and it's held in europe or in the us or australia they'll just deny you a visa. And the way they talk to you, the way they demean you, you know, I have I have so many stories to tell about that, um, the way they dehumanize you. And so um, that's that's a thing that just people take um, for granted that, that this is a system that should exist, right? Anyhow, so I was lucky I got out, I went to Ireland. Um, Wait, you know, with my sister, and then you know, I was waiting for the political asylum work. So my mom went to the states, and she applied for asylum. Luckily, she got it. Um, it was a clear case. It was we were clearly being persecuted, and then um, she uh, was sending for me. I guess I, you know, I was a minor, so it was all approved, which is great. Then the uh, American embassy in Ireland was really just trying to. <laughs> Uh, harass me. I mean, it was awful. I, you know, I was 15. I'm just trying to get reunited with my family. And, um, you know, all they had to do was just sign this paper. That's literally it. There was nothing more for them to do. And they didn't want to do it. And thankfully, one of my Irish friends brought her, you know, her, her parents came with me to the American embassy. And they were like, why are you doing this to this little girl? And finally, um, they said, oh, she, she should come on Friday at 4 p.m. And I said, you know what? I don't trust these people. I'm going to go on Friday at like 1 p.m., you know? And I go on Friday at 1 p.m. And somebody asked the woman, you know, what time do you guys close? And she says 4 p.m. So <laughs> she just wanted me to go there and find it cl closed, right? The gates closed. So I just, you know, I was just like, why Why do these, these people clearly don't want me, you know? And so I felt very much, you know, you're leaving, you got kicked out of, you know, you have to flee this you feel kind of stateless right you have to flee this country um and then you have to, and you're going to a country that is clearly telling you that the, we don't want you um and i actually did i had an american accent from even then you know when i was speaking english and so people didn't know and so i remember um finally i was you know boarding the plane and tour I, I was the last person to board because even when I was boarding they would call my name on the intercom and then they would send me to the room and they would ask me questions and finally I'm like look I don't want to miss my flight they're like whatever you know so I I um went into the plane and I remember this woman um asking um going home and I said, <laughs> what do I say? I mean, I guess, right? I, that's going to be my heart. I, I said yes, but I remember like, I was I was really crying because I was like, wow, this is going to be home. You know, this is going to be wow. home. So then um, I come to the States and um, I go to school. And my first day of school, I go to school and I go to this chemistry class. And, you know, there's the difference like standards, honors, whatever, um, you know, AP. And I didn't know what all of those things meant, right? So I just went, I'm like, okay, standards class. And I go to the chemistry, um, the chemistry teacher was talking about all of the things they were gonna cover. I mean, we're gonna cover this, we're gonna cover that. And I was like, oh, I've done this. I did this in Ireland, you know? <laughs> so I go to him at the end of the class and I say, Hey, um, I've done all this, 
stuff um, that you mentioned, can I move a level up or something? You know, like, I, I don't know. He says, you know, I've met so many people like you who come from other countries and think that they could just come here and take the hardest classes. Um, if you take the exams that these people take, you would fail. And I was like, okay, I just, you know, you don't know me. You don't, I'm so confused. I'm like, okay. So I, I ended up just not taking chemistry in high school. I'm like, I'm not going to deal with it. But basically this was just my life for two years in that school, right? I would, um, I mean, I have so many stories. My guidance counselor said, um, that I wouldn't get into any colleges at all that I applied to, even my safety schools. And, and I was like, I told, I went to my mom and I said, you know, what, what am I going to do? What, you know, what's the alternative? What's the, what's the plan? Like, do I take a year after I try to find a job and stuff? This was like, this is ridiculous. So she goes to him, she said, look, you can either give her a test or something, but you can't talk to my daughter like this, you know? But anyways, this, this was basically, um, I mean, they were just preventing, trying to prevent me from doing so many things, taking a class, an AP class or whatever, or, you know, I don't know. I just, they couldn't imagine that, <laughs> they couldn't imagine that I would, you know, my physics teacher, I remember um, I was saying this yesterday. Um, let's say I t he has a test and if I do well in the test, he'll come to me and he says, oh my God. God, you must have been studying so hard. You must have been working so hard. And then there is this Chinese American guy right behind me, and he goes, oh, "That guy's a genius." <laughs> <laughs> and you know what, what? What the stark? The thing I remember. The thing I remember coming to the states is that, um, you know, as someone who just gets just introduced to this, just like that, like bam, you know, I just did not understand what was going on. I, I didn't understand that this was racism. I obviously knew about racism. I learned about racism, but I thought it would be much more straightforward, right? Like the way they would do it, I thought, you know, it, so what happens is they would act like they're, they, they're concerned about you. They're so nice and all of that. And then they'd still be like, oh, I don't think you should take that class because I think it'd be too hard for you. I'm like, why is this person saying that? But they seem so, but they seem like they care about my well-being, you know? And so I didn't realize how deep, I just never experienced something that deep-seated. Um, you know, when I was in Ethiopia, it was clear, like you're Eritrean, you're going to, you know, you're going to deal, you're going to get deported. I mean, it wasn't like, hey, you know, I, I don't know. It was, it was very, very straightforward. So it was the most confusing thing in my trauma. My mom always would try to say look, it's because you're black. It's because you're from an African country. They don't think you can do math. They don't think you can do this, you know, and she's try, tries to explain. Um, I remember when my mom was looking for a job one time and um, she went to this temp agency and the guy was like, oh, oh, you know, he looks at her, you know, resume was, you know, says, you know, she was an economist, she has a master's degree, and I don't know, oh, she, you know, almost has a master's, and this, you know, she has an economist, is an economist, she's worked for a long time, he says, oh, but who knows, you know, Ethiopia, he's like, you know, you know, you should ask people in your community, like, they might have some security jobs, they might have, you know, you know, things more appropriate for you, she was so angry. She's just like, I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to the manager. And so she goes to the temp agency or she calls. I don't remember. She's like, I need to talk to the manager or whatever. Of course, that's the guy who owns the whole temp agency. Right? <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, it was just like, 
you know, yeah, crash course of <laughs> what the U.S. is like. And then the other thing I totally I remember is in high school, we didn't learn at all about the history of the United States. Like we spent so much time analyzing the Holocaust and, you know, who who is to blame and responsibility and whatever slavery like two minutes, you know, Jim Crow. I don't think I even learned about lynchings in, in my high school. And um, it was just so incongruous with my experience, what they were telling us that I, when I went to college is when I was like, look, I got to take a class or something because this shit is not like, I don't believe what they taught us. <laughs> so I took this class of civil rights in the, in the 20th century you know, read all these books and, you know, and I was like, this, this is, this is, I believe this, this is real. This, this, you know, is, is I, that my experience, you know, computes with that, but in, in high school, no. And it, it took me back to what you were saying about history. Um, that's why they're so resistant. I mean, this whole CRT thing, like they discovered the phrase critical race theory and this whole backlash, it's because that's how you can perpetuate the 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 oppression i mean it, this like one of the most important fights of our i i think time is to fight to get students schools to have to teach real history in the united states and they're gonna fight it to death because that means moving forward that means acknowledging the harm that is being perpetuated that means acknowledging the real history and that's i mean i think that that's gonna be a huge fight right and that's why that's why they're fighting it so hard yeah, it, I mean, <laughs> like the thought that you had, I mean, you know, it's interesting, again, when we speak about media and like what we're actually taught about like these, what what is I think colloquially called like these quote unquote refugees, right? Yeah. And the ways in which technology is being used and leveraged to like quote unquote keep us safe, right? Like yeah. keep us safe from you, from a 15 year old, you yeah. know, woman from Ethiopia who's trying to escape oppression, who obviously has incredible things to contribute to our society, who's literally had to fight every step of the way, you know, from Ireland, from Ireland, all the way to the United States, to what? Come to a chemistry class <laughs> that she already knows everything. And like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's this kind of like perpetuation of like American exceptionalism only to discover like, it's just a bunch of motherfucking smoke and mirrors um, and, you know, full of bullshit. Um, like, so wait, so you meet, it's like, it's like, it's like when you have to, um, you know, you're at a club and there's this long line and you're like, <sighs> fine it must be like amazing right and you like wait all this time to get in this fucking like you go in and it's like the music's terrible everyone's ugly like what the fuck was i waiting for like this is bullshit like that's like i'm too old for this i'm not gonna stand in line and yeah more i'm done you know yeah that's it the U the U the u.s is like a shitty meatpacking district club um but you know but there's so many other things that you know were discussed that just you know, in one on one hand, it makes me think about the ways in which our policies and our regulation um, that are rooted one. I mean, obviously, like in one capitalism, 
fueled by too um, white supremacy, the ways in which that short-sighted thinking um, actually shoots us in the foot, right? Because what we're doing is we're we're like literally extracting information from our citizens in order to power machines to what maintain what like American stupidity apparently because we actually don't even want to allow for you know intelligent like diverse voices in a country that's supposed to be about intelligence and diversity like what the fuck are you talking about and also like you know even when you mentioned you know you trying to come to the states and they announce your name over the intercom like it's made me think about like one being like how many times i've traveled and you sit in the airport and we hear this all the time could so and so please come up to the you know so the ways in which oppression is taking place literally right beneath us right like like right yeah exactly right in front of our very eyes and it just goes unquestioned we don't think about why does someone i've never been called up to the booth why is somebody being called up to the booth they're being called to be taken into some fucking, you know, interrogation room. Like, like it's just the ways in which these systems are designed, right? This is by design. You know, the these, these of- um, um, deportation flights, there are many deportation flights where they take the people to be deported along with other passengers. So sometimes passengers, um, they're, you know, people who understand the situation, passengers who just say, no, I'm not going to let this plane take off, right? And other passengers look at them like, oh, who is this disruptive, whatever person. But you're, imagine you are deport. I mean, just what just happened to Haitians at the U.S., um, uh, oh, at the border. Oh, right. my God. Watching that with the with the horses and the whips. And why? Because they were that was the first nation to revolt against slavery. Right. That was the first nation to revolt against colonization. And they're, they've been punished for it, been made an example for it by all the Western powers ever since. And now you have the audacity to do this to the to, to the black refugees from there. And so but. When you look at, so those are the people, those kinds of people who have spent a decade going on foot, you know, fighting for a breathe, like, it's like trying to find air to breathe, right? Just for a a livable life is what they're looking for. And after they thought they got to it, now they're going to be deported, right? And so, for instance, for AirTrans, that's happened to a number of AirTrans, and one of them was de- getting deported from the U.S. to Ertra and through Egypt. And when he got to the Egyptian airport, he committed suicide, you know, uh. and um, there's a lot, there's so many stories like this. And so there are some of these deportation flights that just, that are just basically like there's regular passengers. And here is this, this, this kid who is about to be sent to his torture, perhaps to his death, perhaps to, you know, after spending his whole life, um, trying to find a livable life. I mean, these people go through slavery. These people go through human trafficking. Tor- I mean, the, the amount of stuff that some of these quote-unquote migrants go through is unspeakable atrocities, right? And so once they go through all of that um, and then they get deported, I mean, speaking of which, a nice, a one nice heartwarming story is that of these, these two um, men. There's so many in their situations. For instance, um, they were illegally detained in Egypt for eight to 10 years. So they go from Ertra to Egypt. Ertra is one of, I think it's 
the number one, um, uh, it, it has the highest refugees per capita in the world the number one exporter of refugees. So you have to think, there is this movie, this documentary called Escaping Eritrea. Uh, so for people to understand why people are like trying to leave at such higher um, rates. And these two guys were found by traffickers, human traffickers. There is still a thriving slave market right now <laughs> with auctions and all i mean it's not like this you know and so they were um they were one of them was found by human traffickers and literally at some point they thought he was dead and they just left him um and somehow he got out but then he got detained by police illegally detained for eight years now they were going to deport them to Ertra. and one of these guys was banging his head against the wall to try to commit suicide, like just, and the others, the others saved him. Anyway, so the community came together and they like just made a lot of noise and now they just got resettled to Canada. But, but there are, these are two people, like there's another <sighs> story about 20, 30 of these people, including a mother that had to give birth in a detention center being deported um, back to the hell, the hell that they tried to leave. And, I mean, I'm giving you this because I'm from there and I have connections and I know, and there's Fortress Europe that is, is doing this, but there are the same stories in the US at the, at the border, right? Why are people from El Salvador trying to leave? Do, you do, do we not think our country had something to do with the fact that they can't live in their countries anymore? And now, you know, we're forcing these people to be in inhumane conditions in detention centers and then deported. I mean, it's so inhumane. It's so inhumane. Um, so, you know, we have to we have to think about, as you said, you know, about co-liberation, right? We have to think mm -hmm. about, mm -hmm. you know, empathy for, for all of these people. And we have, we can... Um, kind of fight to make sure that, for instance, you know, we don't make their um, living conditions in their countries horrible so that they have to leave, right? Or fight to not have weapons being exported for these wars, right? All of these wars around the world, who is exporting the weapons? It's certainly not, you know, like Eritreans, right? It's certainly yeah. not. No, it's, it's, it's these countries that don't want to take refugees profiting off of these wars because they're exporting and using their weapons. So all of these things are super connected, right? Where we end up, you know, spending the capital, like you said, what policies we're using, AI and um, Silicon Valley, et cetera. These are all things that are connected to each other. You know, you know, I I, I want to circle back and then move forward. <laughs> like, you know, you, you know, in 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 one of your previous statements, you spoke about like this example of how racism didn't look the way in which you thought. Right? It sounded so nice. It sounded like it was, it was, it was, it was couched in so much concern, and you know what what that's called is a double bind. Um, it's a it's a it's a phrase that was coined by this cultural anthropologist in the 1950s, Gregory Bateson, um, where he realized that many of his schizophrenic patients had similar childhoods um, that were called a double bind, where one or both of their parents um, they were they were receiving conflicting demands or con conflicting messages of both love and hostility. Um, and I know about this. I 
um, I also direct shows for this fashion brand, Pierre Moss, and I called one of the shows Double Bind to actually speak about this, to speak about how black individuals in the United States are kind of walking around with this cultural schizophrenia because our government, our our quote-unquote, you know, I mean, in German they call it Deutschland, right, like the fatherland. Um, so our country... Um, has this has us in this double bind where it is hostility cloaked in simulated love. And so you're never ever really sure what a message actually means. You don't know how to react to it because you're like, do I re do I react to the hostility? Because the the other thing that created this schizophrenia was that was that there was a breakdown in the child because I'm like they're like, do I respond to the hostility cloaked in simulated love only to then be to only receive more hostility or do I respond to the love even though even though I know it's not real and what that what that causes is you know a breakdown in communication so one it can manifest as hebephrenic uh schizophrenia where you believe that um that all messages um are not important so someone could run up to you and say like oh my god I'm on fire and they be on fire and you just burst out laughing because you're like, yeah, it's like nothing, you know, nothing is important. Exactly. Or um, it becomes a catatonic schizophrenia where you just do not react to anything, right? Like you are just in a catatonic state or it becomes paranoid schizophrenia where you believe all messages have a hidden meaning. And so that's, and so that is what many black individuals are walking through America with is this kind of cultural schizophrenia based on this double bind that America, you know, has us trapped in. But then it also makes me think about the ways in which language is actually not meant to uh, communicate. It's actually meant to obfuscate. So the uh, meaning hide behind. Um, Noam Chomsky speaks a lot about this um, in his work that language is actually not about communication. Um, so the way that this guidance counselor used language to actually get around the actual core essence and or intention, which then makes me think about the ways that, like, you know, that, and that's why I mean, like, move forward, takes us back to this conversation about big data or data and language and the ways that this, you know, extractive um, technology in it perpetuates harm, right? Because because there is a level of data and for anyone who's interested in more about this, I mean, obviously, you know, um, double tapping on your organization, DAR, it, it's, um, what does it stand dare. for again? I'm dare. so sorry. Oh, DARE, DARE. Distributed AI Research Institute, DARE. Right. So we can, we can investigate that, but there's also a book that came out, um, last year called Atlas of AI, which is really, 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 really great. Um, if we're talking about, you know, algorithms, if we're talking about data, if we're talking about information, like these computers, these 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 um, generators, right, these processors can only be as good as the data from which it extracts, right? So, you know, in this in this area of big data, so much of this is not even being sifted through for bias, right, for coded language um, and that can also have deleterious effects could you speak a bit about that that's what um, I wrote about with my co-authors 
and I got fired from Google um, for, for writing a paper discussing it. So we had a paper discussing the dangers of what uh, of a technology called large language models. And as you mentioned, this is a type of language technology that is trained on lots of data, like all the data on the internet, for example. And so one of we, we make a lot of points, but one of the points that we make is that there is this assumption that, for example, um, because you have a, a large data set, like all the data on the internet, um, that, oh, it's, it's, it's um, representative of people's, you know, people in the world. It is diverse. And we're thinking, we're saying no, because you can just look at, you know, Reddit or social media platforms or something. Who are the people who are freely expressing themselves and who are the people who are bullied off of the platforms, right? We see that mm. there's a lot of hate directed to people and underrepresented groups. We see that a lot of the views on the internet are um, those of people in dominant groups. You know, there's a lot of hate. There's a lot of coded language, like you said, subtle. Um, it doesn't have to be um, super explicit, but there's a lot of subtle um, coded language too. Um, and if you look at not just even, um, you look at who has access to the internet, right? So that they could actually contribute their views and so that their views would be in these data sets. It's obviously very systematic, right? There are many groups of people and groups of people who are historically oppressed who don't have as much access to the internet. So then you take this um, data that we all know is not representative of, of um, people in general. Um, and then you train a model on that data um, and then a lot of times you can even, what people do is you can even train future models on the output of your current model, right? So now you're, you're perpetuating and amplifying all of these issues. Um, I mean, there's so many issues here. One of the uh, examples we give in our paper is that of um, this Palestinian um, who woke up one day and wrote good morning on Facebook and it was automatically translated to attack them. And um, people, uh, basically they arrested him without even seeing, um, the police arrested him without even seeing what he wrote, right? The actual untranslated version. And then they later let him go. But you can imagine how the, this could have turned out horribly. And also he should have never been arrested in the first place. So his human rights were already violated. Um, and so we've proliferated this kind of technology. And, and, um, the underlying technology behind machine translation right now is large language models. So we're, we're we were outlining some of the potential issues with this kind of technology and how it should just, there, there is this race <laughs> in, in the tech companies right now to, I just like, I don't know, it sounds like a pissing contest to me, but like, it's like, oh, we should have larger and larger language models. Like, oh, my large, my language model is larger than your language model. Oh, my language model, you know, that's literally how they're doing it as far as I'm concerned. And so we were trying to just get them to slow down and, and think about some of the harms to, again, once again, people in marginalized communities primarily. Um, and they didn't like it and I got fired. So that's kind of what happened, right? I they asked me to retract this paper that was peer reviewed. It's, it's, it's now published in, in one of the most well-known academic conferences in this area. And, um, and uh, you know, some higher ups asked me to retract it for, for like no reason. And I said, well, I, first of all, I'm not gonna retract it. The second option they gave me was to take the Google uh, author's names off of this paper. 
And I said, we all do that if we have a discussion about, you know, transparency and how you came to this decision and are you going to have future decisions like this and how am I going to, you know, do my research if people can just randomly without any sort of, you know, I don't know, discussion tell me to do this. And then, you know, um, they, they were just like, oh, yeah, um, we, ex we can't we can't take your condition and we accept your resignation as a result, you know. <laughs> um, so that's what happened. And so, you know, you see that there needs to be a robust movement against this kind of practice, because the moment you push back just a little bit, I, like our paper was not controversial, you know, so you push back just a little bit. Um, you you know you're out like this is what happens to you and and so um so that 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 was kind of what i was trying to raise awareness about um some of the issues that you discuss i mean it just i mean people can people can i don't want to say google but they can look up um <laughs> 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 I use DuckDuckGo now. I'm trying to like, it's so hard not to use Google products. I'm like realizing how it's oh, just no, my whole it's day is filled with Google products. But I started using DuckDuckGo for my search engine with Firefox. I like it so far. So I'm trying to slowly mm. figure out how to de-Google myself, de-Googleify myself. Yeah, I mean, but it's, it's you know, this is, I, this is such a really poignant example of the ways in which so much of this is just a fucking dog and pony show. Like, so this is an organization, big tech organization, that has brought you and others in to be, right? Like, they're literally using capital to give the illusion that we are, we, we are actually in-house, yeah, making sure that we're moving forward ethically, right? And when those people that we hired bring up, not like call out, not like go, you know, to the press and try to cash out, like no, just bring up some of potentially harmful things, right? There's a way, and I actually read your boss's i don't know tweet or whatever he did like his letter whole pay a you whole know? letter saying my and again subpar and all this stuff yeah again language right the ways in which language is used to 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 um circumvent the actual issue at hand um but the moment that that is somehow threatened minorly even by your own like like by yourself this this is kind of a self-inflicted quote-unquote wound like it's extraction, right? It's, 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 your, it's, your, you know, you're out. Um, and that's really important. Like, I think, you know, it's, it's tough sometimes because you realize like, I'm here to do this work. You've asked me to do this work, but you're not asking me to do this work. Yeah. Like, you're not yeah. asking me to do this work. And, and even though you lied to me, right, you told me that this was a teachable moment. This is not a teachable moment. And it's interesting because I find that that's a very fractal kind of, um, provocation right because that can happen just in the boardroom that can happen on the street that can happen waiting in line you know at the post office but you know but what's amazing is what you did afterwards right you know so on one hand it's like you know what happens when our voices are silenced and censored by big tech but then 
when that happens, what do we do? Collective organizing is, you know, I think this is why collective organizing is so important because what allowed for my voice not to be squashed as much as they tried was the thousands of people who came to my defense, right? My team organized, um, people, former and current Googlers were organizing. There were, you know, people were writing to the Congress people. Like there was a lot, there was a lot of letters from so many uh, groups of people. So I think that collective organizing is really important because no matter what I did, without that, they could have succeeded, right? I mean, decades ago, a lot of black women couldn't, you know, no matter how brave they are or whatever, they would have squashed them, right? They, they would succeed in, in squashing them. So for me, I mean, I, it's not like it wasn't a great experience. I, I, I you know, that email that um, Jeff Dean wrote that he put out publicly was like a dog whistle to a whole bunch of white supremacists who then kind of started coordinating and all of that um, on social media. And, you know, all wow. that was, that was a whole chapter. Wow. But, but, you know, what I want to say is the fact that I was able to start my own institute and get funding for it um, is a big deal because they could have they could have succeeded in smearing me so much that my reputation could be ruined and all of that. And that that's what they try to do. Um, and that's why for me, it was very important to say my story first. That's why I came out publicly um, from the very beginning, because I saw how they did that to other people who they fired. Um, it was so bad. Like, for instance, there is a, a trial, a, an NLRB, National Labor Relations Board trial. Oh, my God. Against people they fired three years ago. And the trial is still ongoing, right? And what they did is they fired them and they smeared them. I, the a One VP wrote, a VP of security or something wrote an email to the entire company, um, making them sound like, you know, stalkers, really. It was horrible. And um and I, so I knew what they would, would do. And so before they cooked up something, you know, I wanted to not give them time to do that because I don't have anything to be afraid of. I'm telling the truth, right? I'm not making anything up. So I don't need time to make, to get my story straight. My story's already straight, right? Like, I, so I just wanted to put it out there. I, I was like constantly, you know, with the press, constantly talking because the other thing that they're not used to is also you not being ashamed, like you mm -hmm. saying, you know, in my view, they should be ashamed for what they did, not me, but that's, they're not used to that because for them, Google is the end all be all. So I should be ashamed that I lost my job there, right? That's how they view it. Like the whole world revolves around Google for them. For me, I did not view it like that. I did. I wanted them to be held accountable and I wanted people to see what they're doing to people because the real, the real story for me is that I was highly visible um, and also that was a, a, a kind of like a survival mechanism for me, like a bit of a, a protection, but, and, and they still did that to me. And now let's imagine most of the black women who work at Google, most of the black people who work at Google, they're contractors, they're in other positions, precarious positions that they, they put them in those positions on purpose. Imagine what they do to them. Right. Um, so, and so I just, that's the real story for me. And I hear some of these people's stories and it's, they're heartbreaking. They, they cause really long-term, long-term damage and long-term harm. And, and so we got to figure out how they can be stopped. Like they should not be allowed to do this kind of thing to people with impunity.
Um, so for me, that's that's the real story is just think about, you know, how they're allowed to do this to people with impunity and think about the people whose stories you don't know many that that's many of those people right who are not so visible um, that they did this to. Yeah, and it's so smart. Whoa, I didn't even think about like that that tactility, like that that strategy. Because even if someone maybe heard something, guess where they're gonna go to find out what the story was? They're gonna fucking go to Google. Like, do you know? Like, like you know what I mean? And so, I mean, like, wow, like crazy. And you know, not to, and I mean there are multiple things right that uh, that are happening you know within that company many things that i know from even friends that i work with like even just you know their hiring practices and you know, like how they actually keep people as you gotta talk to um, april curly april curly yeah. is someone who was a the woman who <laughs> is responsible for them hiring um a lot of black students from hbcus they had not a single uh, black person in a, um, I, I mean, not a single, I don't know if it's uh, just a black person in general or somebody from an HBCU graduate, not a single one in an engineering position before 2014, before she arrived, right? And she fought tooth and nail for six years and changed a lot of things. But I mean, what she endures, it's kind of like a caricature of racism. It's unbelievable, you know, um, that, that, that they did that to her. And they fired her three months before me. In September, she was fired. In December, I was fired. Um, and so one of the things I spoke up and then she spoke up after I came forward. And I'm really happy that she did because why should she be the one to be quiet, right? We should know what they did to her and they should be held accountable. But yeah, she knows a lot about their hiring practices. She said a lot about how they admit to having, uh, giving harder interview questions um, to people from HBCUs and how derogatory they were and how they look down on people. You know, she has so many, uh, she's seen so, so many of these things. Um, I think you should, you should have her on the show. She's awesome. <laughs> Oh, you, you've listed like four names that like, I'm like, Carmen, girl, please take notes, girl. <laughs> I mean, Joy, obviously, like we have to talk about the algorithmic Justice League, you know, and I also want to be respectful of your time. So I just have a couple of more questions, if you don't mind hanging with me for, for, for just a few more minutes. Um, one, I actually just want to pivot to like your day-to-day life. Like, I mean, obviously having this like one just kind of blow up with like one of the largest companies in the world i would imagine is pretty stressful um but then also just like the daily work and the information that you hold right like really understanding how these systems of of power um, are at play and are just looming large right looming large unbeknownst to so many individuals and that goes across race right like that goes across nationality like what are ways in which you just care for yourself like is there a spiritual practice like what like what is that work that you do i sleep a lot like i, <laughs> I cannot cut on my sleep i can't you know there's i mean the world is ending if i don't sleep so i that's one that's so important to me and I'm lucky that I can do it. So I just, I do, if I need to sleep 10 hours, I'll do it. If I need to sleep 12 hours, I'll do it. Um, so that's really important for me. Um, I like 
little ritual. Thank you I all like having, so much you for joining us today. I'm so little, grateful to Tony for hopping in to take us through the, in the ins morning. and outs of the urban know. built just, environment. I don't know what it is like about, many a Facebook you know, update. It slowly, sitting, it's taking time complicated. I really enjoy that. I like Slide into those comments and DMs over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. Let us know some of your takeaways. Oh, I don't know. and don't um, forget like you chocolate. can visit so these, our new interactive website, blackimagination.com. You know, um, so I, I, like Brazilian I writer Paulo Freire stated, justice I is that. not about I, a transfer I love, I love, of power. But about you know, a restoration of humanity. More like an By restoring it to those that, from which it was taken, know, it's also restored to those who lost it like, you know, in I think just the taking. Like, Stay you know, curious. Just being alive and keep is, is work, but what's amazing and, and understanding that, you know, that everything is really temporary. And, you know, as Octavia Butler says, that God is change. Like anything that we measure is actually change at whatever level. It is a shift right so things are actually constantly in flux but you know what is what we're what we still have are those moments right like that sometimes it's just your your moment with your latte or a piece of chocolate you know no and those are important those those small ceremonies those small rituals that just you know enliven us even if it's just taking 10 minutes to lay in bed once you've woken up you know like we can find these little moments of of escape and 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 beauty um and so before i ask my last question um i would just i just want to thank you so much like i just want to acknowledge the work um and like the tireless work that you've done not only to just live like you know just the insurmountable obstacles that you've that you've traversed just to be period like as foundation right that so many of us have no experience of and will never actually experience but not only that not only to survive but like to thrive like to go in do the work do the hard work all to just let us know what's going on. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, like, just to give back to individuals that, that look like you and that don't look like you, the information about what they're sharing, right? Like that, that, that has potential deleterious effects, actually not potential, has deleterious effects currently, you know, on our everyday lives, you know, to, to shed light and, and then beyond that, the chutzpah to speak truth to power, right. In places of power, like use their own platform against them. And so in that way, like, I'm not really trying to be hyperbolic, but like, that's some superhero shit. Like that's some, like, I'm going to take your, you know, um, focus beam and I'm going to like turn my shield, you know, like Hercules and put it back on you, like head of Medusa. Like it's some kind of mythical shit. So we're totally just had a conversation with like a superhero. So thank you for that incredible, incredible work. Um, you are incredible. Um, so thank last you. question. Ah, my pleasure. Um, what is the world that you imagine for the future? Oh, man, you know, I imagine, honestly, it's extremely simple. Um, I 
imagine a future where people in marginalized communities can imagine a future as I imagine a future where people in marginalized communities have the space, the resources, the mental capacity, because they're not constantly, you know, uh, handling that um, racist email or that look or that whatever that, you know, all the little they're not little things. I remember Ruha said microaggression for whom it's not micro, right? Um, but all of those things that sap your energy, I imagine a, a time when people can can have that space back um, to themselves so that we can imagine, we can have joy, we can um, spend time together, we can um, dance, you know, <laughs> sing, we can um, think about a future where it's not a constant battle to just exist. Um, so that's, that's the future I imagine. Um, and I'm glad that you have a whole institution dedicated for it. <laughs> I love the name of your institution. And, and I think that's key. That's key because you, we can't create a different um, reality, a different future, uh, unless we have time to imagine. Absolutely. Timnit, did, did, did you do the right Timnit? Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm going to keep doing it over and over and over and over again. I almost answered you in the way I answer my mom. So, yeah. Oh, what would that be? What would that be? I'd be like, Abit. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. I love it. Um, well, you have an incredible, incredible afternoon. Thank you so much. We will have to have you back because I really want to get into D.A.R.E. and like the things that you're working on over there. Um, but until the next time, you're incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much for tuning in today. Timit is such a superstar. Wow. This episode, I hope, gives us an inside look into what it really means to bloom in the midst of chaos. If you enjoyed, be sure to share it with a friend. Slide into those comments and DMs over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. Let us know your takeaways. Let us know what spoke to you on a really deep level. Oh, and don't forget you can visit our new interactive website, blackimagination.com. You know, freedom doesn't always come easily. We're all pushing for the ability to become more of who we are. What are you resisting? And what are you allowing? Stay curious and keep dreaming.